Welcome to the Missions Podcast, the show that explores your hard questions on missions, theology, and practice to help goers think and thinkers go. I'm Alex Kochman, Director of Advancement and Mobilization for ABWE International, joined as always by my brother-in-arms, Scott Dunford, Lead Church Planter for Redeemer Church in Fremont, California, and West Coast Mobilizer for ABWE. Scott, it's awesome to hear you on the line today. I've been running around busy, and I hear you just finished up a nap in your hammock in the middle of the afternoon um, right before we hopped on the line. Is this true? Uh, it, it, it is true, Alex. I mean, that's why God <laughs> gives his beloved rest. So, it, you know, I, I'm feeling old today. It's actually my birthday. So it is. Um, You're right. I texted uh, you and I forgot to acknowledge this when we hopped on the phone. Should should we say I, our listeners don't want to hear us taking saying. my birthday nap because now I'm an old man. I mean, I'm 43 years old and I'm just slowing down a little bit. Um, and, you know, it's beautiful here. In, <laughs> it's all downhill it's from here. Here in Northern California, it's funny you know we were talking about how nice it is here and then someone one of our listeners jumped on and reminded me that you know not all of california is as nice as it is in northern california it's very very hot in other places and i don't know what the weather's like in san diego but san diego is almost always very beautiful and uh i think that's where our guest is calling us from today that's how you know you've made it as a podcaster when even when you're talking about the weather you've managed to offend different groups out there oh yeah um who are feeling excluded so we've we've arrived (laughs) Um, but speaking of the west coast coming to us from san diego is brooks buser president of radius international brooks uh we'll give you a second to introduce yourself but brooks if you don't know him uh is the son of a previous guest of ours brad buser who founded the organization but brooks and his wife nina planted a church among the yembe yembe people in papua new guinea in 2016 they returned to the u.s to serve with radius here stateside brooks why don't you share just a little bit more about yourself and welcome to the show yeah hey thanks alex and scott no it's i've heard a lot from chad and from dad just being on the podcast so looking forward to spending some time with you guys yeah as you heard from dad, I was raised overseas, raised in uh, the tribe, actually, the Teddy tribe, but went off to boarding school. Uh, it was a different time. So when I was five years old, went off to boarding school for the first time for first grade, ended up going back and forth uh, from where they were working up to the Highlands location where the school was located. And I uh, graduated from there. And because of Papua New Guinea law, came back to the United States and had a burning desire to actually join the Marine Corps. I uh, was thinking about that. And dad and I made a deal that I would do two years at college and uh, then I could join the Corps. So I went off to college mm. and I met my wife, future wife, the first day there. So I waved goodbye to the Marine Corps the first day I was in college. But So smart. Was, what a good choice. <laughs> yeah. No, it was, uh, it was incredible. She was actually dating another guy at the time. So it was... Uh, God's immeasurable grace that uh, (laughs) somehow, miraculously, they were able to break up and yeah, we were able to find ourselves. That's great. After that, uh, I worked, I came out of college, got a degree in business, worked as an accountant, eventually as a CFO for a Dutch conglomerate over in Europe. And honestly, through our time and devotions, uh, we got challenged back into missions and uh, we ended up leaving that job, headed overseas in 2003 with our son, who was at that time three years old. And uh, there were these letters. Once we'd learned the national language of Papua New Guinea, the leadership of the organization came to us and they showed us these letters of tribal groups that had been asking for missionaries. They have to ask for five consecutive years before they make the list of people that you can look at for potential allocation. So there's those seven tribes that were on that list. We were evaluating where to go in and we ended up through a process of going to the Yembe Yembe people. 
Well, let me just ask, because you followed in your father's footsteps, what kind of process was that? I mean, was it an assumption that you were just going to pursue missions yourself? And how did God wrestle you to the ground on that one? Yeah, no, I wasn't, I definitely wasn't sold on missions coming out of college. I had about $65,000 in student loans. And I, I actually, I was fairly gifted at accounting and was able to work my way up fairly quickly. And a lot of things were going, were going pretty well for us. We, we'd done some things. Uh, we were looking at houses in La Jolla, which is a really nice area of San Diego, uh, my son was my unborn son at that time. We'd prepaid for his K through 12 private school education. There's just a lot of things. And we were still involved in our church. We were supporting, I think it was somewhere between five or six missionary couples at that time involved in the youth department. And like I said, I, I we weren't thinking about missions as the primary thing. And it was on, it was our time in the word. It was our time reading passages like Matthew 28, 18, going through Acts 1, looking at Revelation 5, 9, Romans 15, Romans 10, and just the implications of what you give your life for and how that carries on all through eternity. And I, I just, I had this horrible thought that I would give my life for the dollar bill. And that, that eventually steered us back into missions. Mm. So Brooks, in a conversation recently with a mutual friend of ours, Luke Womack, um, who is head of the GoFund, and we've interviewed him on this show as well, which is a great resource for people who are interested in missions who have significant student loan debt. Uh, we highly recommend that you check them out. But Luke relates to me that you are a master storyteller. We know that it resonates with you, the fact that there are people, 3 billion who are born, who live, and who perish uh, into a eternity in God's wrath without ever even having opportunity to hear the gospel. And we talk about those statistics a lot. Uh, I hear that you have a good story to share um, relating to that. I really just want to turn it over to you and let you share your heart. Yeah, and I think there's a case to be made for not just missions, but defining missions, which by the way, that article that you wrote the last few days, we linked that to the Radius report yesterday and uh, the five Christian activities we mistake for missions. Anyways, mm, yeah. to define missions more closely, and I think that's kind of the crux of the story is there are people groups, entire languages that have no gospel, no disciples, and most especially no church. And that's kind of where we need to be more targeted at. And so when I, when I was over in New Guinea, uh, we had those letters, like I, I talked about that were coming in, but sometimes there were people groups that didn't have anybody with the ability to write a letter. They didn't have any, uh, anybody that was literate enough to write something to request missionaries to come. And you got to understand when people are writing letters, they're not writing, they're not asking for Jesus. We know that nobody seeks after God. Mm. They're asking for missionaries to come because they bring economic benefits, they bring medicine. And once in a while, there are some language groups that have seen the language, or excuse me, the gospel landing in another location and they see what happens there and they go, we want that. We don't know what it is, but we see this talk comes in and it totally changes everything. And so, so there's this one people group called the Gatamambu people who had, uh, they didn't have anybody who could write a letter. So they'd been sending out two or three people every year for about three years. And so the leadership of, uh, the organization I was with at that time, New Tribes Mission, we got together and we literally drew straws because it was, it was a very far off location. And I drew the short straw to go in there and to evaluate if we could put missionaries in that location. 
And so I went back into Yemby Yemby. At that point, we'd been in there for nine years and we had a, a strong church that was growing. We were continuing to disciple them. And I told them where I was thinking about going. And they said, you need to take somebody with you. You need to take a, an older guy. And uh, I was like, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Older men, especially if they've got gray hair, are highly esteemed in that type mm. of a culture. And so I took one of my tribal fathers with me. We loaded up in the airplane uh, a couple of weeks later, had some fish and rice. Uh, landed at an airfield that was close enough to where we could hike in. And uh, we ended up hiking for about three hours. We made it to uh, one of the sister villages of Gatamambu. The place was called Yadakai. And uh, we told them, we're going to Gatamambu. And if if anybody would like to help us carry our bags, I always carry this huge bag of candy with me. If there's any kids that want to carry our bags or the rice or fish, we'll give candy now, we'll give candy later. And our bags just flew down the path. It was, it was incredible. Um, <laughs> and so we hiked through there. Then we made it to another sister village called Nawe. Same deal. So we had this kind of entourage for about 50 little kids that were going with us by that point. And we hike over the mountaintop and we make it into Gatamambu the people who had been sending uh, these ambassadors for three years. And uh, they knew we were coming and they'd pounded out. We could hear the drums when we were about five, six miles away, letting everybody know that we were coming in. And we arrived in the village and in Gatamambu, what they do if they like you, they come at you and they look like they're going to give you a big bear hug. And then they drop down on all fours and they kind of crawl between your legs. And so it was just, it was huh. the weirdest thing. You're, you're, I do that all the time. I, I don't, are you saying that's unusual or? <laughs> well, it, it can be. I mean, you're a, you're a Valley guy. So you know, <laughs> Alex, he's central PA. So that makes even more sense. I'm central PA, but you know, that, that is, that is the traditional Amish greeting is to crawl between someone's legs. <laughs> so yeah, we may get into the middle of the village and they're going nuts they're just they're singing they're dancing and my tribal father he we were adopted into clans there so we don't call each other by our names we call each other by how we're related to each other and he goes eldest white son he goes do you know why they're so excited and i said i no idea and he says they think they think you're the one i said what do you mean he goes they think you're the guy who's coming to be their missionary that's why they're so excited and I'm just, I'm dying. And so we invite over the chief and we got to work through two translators. He doesn't know our language. We don't know his language. We don't even know the intermediary language. We got to work through two translators. And I tell him, I'm not the guy. I'm here for three days and then I'm leaving. And we think he understands. We're not really sure. So we stay for three days. I mean, we just have this crowd of people going with us everywhere that we go. Uh, everything we do, stop, write down their language, take pictures. There's just a group always with us. And we get to the third day and we wake up in the morning, uh, come outside of our little house that they put us in and the chief is waiting there and he says, we need to have a meeting. And so he pulls us into this house. It's called the house of men. And he makes an exception for ladies to come into the house of men, uh, of chiefs and of up and coming chiefs. And so he sits me down and his two wives, he puts them on either side of me. And these are older women that have no teeth left and they have pure white hair. Their white, their hair is just totally white. And he gets up and he says, okay, I see that you're leaving, but I want to know when is our missionary coming? Huh. And we, I'm looking at my tribal father. And so I get up and I'm being really diplomatic. I'm being evasive basically, because we don't have anybody in the pipeline. And I tell him, it's going to be a while. It's going to be, it's going to be quite a while before we can send anybody to you. And he gets up a second time and he goes, no, no, no. I want to know how many moons will go by, how many moons will go by until our missionary comes. And I'm sweating bullets now. 
And I get up again and I say, it's going to be a long time. It's going to be a lot of moons. And he gets up a third time and he's, he's pretty ticked by this time. He Mm -hmm. says, no, I want a number. Give me a number of how many moons will go by until somebody comes to learn our language, comes to give us this talk that we've heard about. When will that happen? And my tribal father, he bails me out. He says, eldest white son, I'll tell him. And he gets up and I'll never forget this for as long as I live. He gets up and he says, look around at everybody in this house. Everyone with gray hair will be dead. And then somebody may come to you. That's how long it took for us. Cause he was the guy who wrote the letters for seven years until we came to YMBMB. And he said, everybody here, you'll bury them all. And then somebody may come to your place. And we got up after that, said our goodbyes as best we could. We hiked out of that tribe. It was one of the worst feelings of my life, but that mm-hmm. that's one of the things that happened when we would go on these survey trips to these locations. But that, that one's more dramatic just because of the the way that these guys were asking, and they, they still aren't. They've been asking, I think it's close to seven years now, seven years, and they still haven't gotten anybody yet. Wow. Wow. So that's heavy. I Now, let me, without diminishing from that story, but I think some of our listeners may be wondering, obviously, it's not ideal, and you might not be able to have as much long-term impact, but in this particular situation, what was there to prevent you guys from communicating the gospel through a, a translator? Was that an option for you, at least while you have them? We actually talked about that as a leadership team when we popped out. Like, could we go back in? Could we work through two translators? Because again, we were we were separated by two languages. So it was just the conversation I relayed to you, that happened over a, a good chunk of time, just trying to get the the getting the communication correct. The biggest thing that we were worried about, and I think this is one of the issues, this is one of the things that Radius really pounds hard, is that gospel clarity has to be there unless you're not concerned about the syncretistic aspect of things. And that that concerned us greatly that we could give a gospel. We just weren't sure what would be understood uh-huh. and what would be received. And so we put them on the list. And you know what? To be honest, uh, the Yembis, the church that we established there in Yembi Yembi, a few years ago, I think it was about four years ago, a couple of the girls there ended up marrying into that tribe and they've learned the language now. And so there was a request, I think, in the last year that came from the people there to bring a missions team over from the church that we planted to get there. It's going to be a long hike for them. I think it's like a three or four day hike to get there, but there may be a possibility for that to happen. So we're excited about that. We're really hoping that somebody does get there before, yeah, before too much time passes. That's a heart wrenching story. And uh, so, you know, what is your appeal when you, when you talk to young people, um, that that may be thinking about missions and they hear a story like that and and they wonder what am I supposed to do with that information like what what do you think I know it's kind of an open-ended question but what do you think Christians ought to do with that kind of information like it's hard to just hear that and go wow that's powerful yeah and I mean I'm distilling it to some degree and taking out some funny things that they did to us when we were in the tribe there and just they were really nice people very gentle with us I'd say there's two major takeaways number one is that not everybody's a goer there are senders I think that's accurate I love what John Piper says I think he nails it when he says there's goers there's senders and there's disobeyers but we're one of the three if we're Bible believers and we better not kid ourselves about that so there's an aspect to where you may 
may not be a goer, but if you're not a goer, you better be a radical sender. I think that's Mm. number one. And then number two, I think one of the things I try and steer young people on is that there is such a thing as a reached location. I count San Diego in mission sense as a reached city, not because Mm. there isn't every kind of sin known to mankind existing here, but because Claremont Emanuel Baptist Church exists here, Shadow Mountain Community Church, The Rock, The Flood. There's just a host of these churches. And Paul in Romans 15 kind of lays out why he sees Jerusalem to Illyricum Uh as no longer a place for him the pioneer missionary to work. There's there's just nothing left to do there. And we know from church history that he affected less than 2% of the population, but he calls that uh-huh. a reached area. And so through that story, I'm really trying to guide young people to, if you're going to get into missions, man, there, there are places that still have nothing. And to get to those locations, there's a prioritization that kind of has to get back into the DNA of the, the Western church, I believe. And so that's kind of where I try and shepherd people with that. So you spent a lot of time with the MBMB. What's the situation now there with that church? Are they in the situation where they're able to start sending their own missionaries uh, cross tribal or, or are there, are there other, other issues that come up when you have these near people groups um, working with each other? What, what's been your experience with that? Yeah, no, the situation with the Yembe is very encouraging. We finished the New Testament translation and next year, actually, I get to go back. I go back every year to check on the church. So next year, though, my coworker and I have finished the revision and large chunks of the Old Testament and we're putting out a waterproof Bible. So we're going over to do that dedication Hmm. in April of next year. But the Yembe Church has grown. Uh, It's starting to reach the surrounding dialects. And in 2016, when we pulled out, we gave the church, uh, we'd already done that two years prior, but we stayed with them to watch these elders and deacons shepherd the church. But yeah, that that was one of the things we wanted to see is that they had the same desire, the same and there's another story in there that I quite I, I tell quite often about when the Yembies got saved and how two weeks after they wanted to start going to the neighboring villages. But yeah, I think that's a mark of a healthy church that its missions program, I hate that word, but its heart for missions mm-hmm. is vibrant, that it sees its responsibility to the nations, not just as well, we've got the choir, we've got VBS, and we've got missions. Like they, they see, no, 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 this is why we exist. This is why we're here. And hopefully the Yembe hmm. Church, they continue to grow in that. And they're starting to send out little pockets, little teams that are going to these different locations now. As you're working with young young people, and I know you're working with young people at Radius and helping them to discern not only the, the, the situation on the ground, um, but also their responsibility to it. How do you help them process um, whether or not eat in an, in an individual particularly should should go ahead and step out in faith and, and answer a call like that, realizing that, that the answer to that particular call from that tribe is going to take several years um, or even more after they go through their training. How do you help them walk through that as they're pondering that and making sure that it's not just, they're not just making a, some kind of a emotional response that they're actually acting in obedience? 
Yeah, no, that's a really good question, Scott. We have three criteria for students to enroll at Radius. Number one, they have to have a college degree or a maturity level commensurate with that. That's code for do they have normal social skills? Mm. There used to be this idea that <laughs> they're kind of awkward. We wouldn't make them a greeter. We definitely wouldn't make them an elder, but they'd be perfect in India. And that's just, that's not true. It's not, good. Right. It's not helpful. Right. That's number one. Number two is does their local church vouch for them? Does their local church say, these are the type of people that we believe will be our best ambassadors. We're sending our best. And so we really want the local church to weigh in on that. And number three is, are they committed to going to an unreached, unengaged people group? And if they have those three criteria nailed down and they're, I don't want to say they're shoe-ins, but they're, they're students that we're looking to bring into the program. So everybody comes in with the expectation that we are going to go to an unreached, unengaged people group. What we train them in, because a lot of them aren't going to end up in places like Gautamambu. They're going to end up in India. They're going to end up in China, Indonesia. They're going to end up in sometimes urban environments, but more starting in urban environments and then making their way out to the rural areas. And that's going to take time. And the reason primarily is because to be fluent in the languages of the people that they're going to bring the gospel to takes time. And so we train them in how to learn languages that people have never heard before, never written down before. There's no Rosetta Stone. There's no uh, Google Translate. They're going to go to those places. And all of them have to square with that while they're in the program. Some of them will will come out of the program and they'll just, they'll be able to say, I don't think I can do this. I don't think I'm up for this. Mm. But the vast majority, I think it's up to 92% go, yeah, this may take me. One of the classes last year, they made a, they made their shirts, their class shirts, and it said 20 to life, huh. 20 to life. This is what I will do mm. to make sure that there is a strong self-sustaining New Testament church planted that will outlive me. So that's kind of some of what we're trying to push into the students during their 10 months down there. Uh, there's a lot of youthful zeal and excitement and enthusiasm. And I can imagine what are some of the things that you are finding you have to unteach your students about missions? Um, we're having to unteach probably the two major drivers that are uh, abounding in the missions world today. Number one is speed. And number two is pragmatism. Mm. How do we get the most amount of people into the meeting? How do we get the most amount of people saved and baptized in the shortest amount of time possible? And speed and pragmatism work great for McDonald's and Microsoft. They're horrible for the gospel because they end up producing things that are shallow. And so we really have to undo some of that. I don't want to say it's a short-term missions mentality, but there's a lot of this idea that the world can be won through summer trips, and that mostly comes from the West. And so we, when we, when we moved into Yembe Yembe, my wife and I, in 2003, we moved in and we told the Yembe's along with our coworkers that we were going to come live with them. And one of the guys stood up and again, we didn't know their language. So we were working through one translator at that point. And they said, we want to know, are you going to be like the ones who go and come or are you going to be people who stay? And we had no idea what they were talking about. And later on, we found out there had actually been a short-term missions team from Minneapolis, Minnesota, a wonderful church, godly as all get out, loves Jesus, that had come into Yembe and had presented the gospel in one day. 
They didn't know the national language. They didn't know the MBMB language, but they presented the gospel one day and anybody who believed got a bar of soap huh. and the entire tribe went forward to get a free bar of soap. And there's, mm. they've got this great write up about how the MBMB people are reached now and just praise God for the immense work that he did. And it, it honestly, it took us about a year and a half to undo what that Jesus loving, doctrinally savvy, wonderful church unintentionally through their zeal without knowledge did. And I think Mm. that's where we end up starting with some of the students. And honestly, that's a mentality that has crept into the Christian church, that speed and pragmatism in missions. That's really hard for um, American Christians to get their minds around. Um, Because you hear, you know, a story of a people group that's begging for the good news and they want to just like cut to the chase and, and, you know, let's just, let's just get right to the cross. And yet what you're describing there is, is just something that people aren't, you know, maybe can't comprehend, but if you don't do that hard work, you could end up something with something much more, a much worse situation than they started out with. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's something of what we teach. Most Christians in the church today are unaware of syncretism, the mixing of their existing belief system with an introduced belief system and how that's even worse than the original. It's so much harder to undo from people who think they're now believers, but they only had a very surface level understanding. And I I try to explain it sometimes to young people by if a guy from Romania who knew very choppy English, tried to come in and mess with your worldview, tried to explain to you a better way to live, tried to explain to you something that he holds very dear, but he had a fifth grade level understanding of even less than that, in most cases for American missionaries, understanding of English language. Would you entertain him? Would you let him mess with your worldview? Most of us wouldn't. Most of us would not be that gracious. We wouldn't be open to having a discussion with somebody who's still floundering with really elementary concepts. And that's where Americans typically, I I say Americans, but it's mostly a Western concept. We believe that because we have a passport that gives us the right to share the gospel, it gives us the opportunity, but it doesn't give us the right. We got to be really, really careful about how the gospel goes. One of the things I like to say to college groups is how you take the gospel somewhere in 2019 is just as important as if you take the gospel somewhere because syncretism is deadly. It's so deadly. And and we've seen that. I mean, I can think of being involved in a nursing home ministry in college that was, we were required to do ministry. And and so every, every Wednesday night I'd drive up to Iron Mountain, Michigan in the UP. And, uh, I would, you know, most of my first sermons were preached in that little nursing home and then visiting, um, Roman Catholic, you know, 90 year old ladies, uh, who, who really didn't understand the gospel at all. And yet were convinced, you know, that their prayers to the saints and to Mary, uh, were, were saving them. And, and you couldn't help them to see that, that they desperately needed Christ. Um, but because they had been given a false understanding of the gospel that they were sure, um, was, was, uh, was it was all they needed. And so we can even see that in America and, um, the house syncretism has, uh, and that's just one example. Obviously there's many, many more that could be given. 
Yeah. Now, one of the things, I mean, see, there's another side to this, though, is that most people look at the price tag of if I'm going to go to this people group, let's say the Gautamambu people that we talked about earlier, if I go there and it takes me, let's say it takes a year to learn the national language of Papua New Guinea, then it takes me another year and a half to learn the Gautamambu language to full fluency, and then I'm able to dive into the gospel. Man, that's that's two and a half years that I have dedicated, not to mention some of the other months just to move in and build a house and live among them. But what happens is through the process of doing that, it actually adds value to the people. It's not like these people don't have eyes and ears and they're not watching. Why are you taking so long? Because this message is so important. I don't want to get it wrong. And that we, one of the things we tell the radius students is, your sixth year in ministry will be better than all the five previous years put together. Your seventh year will be better than all the six previous years put together. And it just goes on and on. It's this multiplication factor that starts to kick in when you're a known commodity and they've seen you pay the price to become fluent in their language and culture and to be able to bring the gospel clearly in a way that they would understand. It's just, it's incredible to watch because the front end is heavy. You pay the price heavy. It's front loaded in pain. The back end is unbelievable. Well, let me play devil's advocate for a moment. You mentioned the word multiplication. So obviously as North Americans, we have a tendency to be overly pragmatic and to focus on quick results. Um, But we would, I don't think any of us would sit here and say, hey, if the Holy Spirit uh, chooses to draw more people to Christ in a quicker period of time, um, we would love that, right? And so, um, what what is it that uh, about the impulse to to do that that may be well motivated but not always helpful? And specifically, when you're discipling people, when you're spending those long periods of time unpacking the gospel with them. Um, what's the harm in teaching them to immediately go out and spread it with others so that the thing goes viral? Yeah, I think Christians in the West are looking at the Holy Spirit and they look at him and they look at their scriptures and they don't see the normal means of how the Holy Spirit works. There are abnormal times where we see incredible movements, even in in the United States in the 1820s, 1830s, the Great Awakening, George Whitfield, some of the things. The book Revival and Revivalism is a great little microcosm of what's happening in missions today, just from the revivalistic standpoint of what happened in the 17th and 18th century. But we look at the normal means, and when things don't happen in the normal means, we go, that's incredible, but we don't call that a methodology. We call that a miracle. That's a miracle of God. When things happen that are not normally, the teaching of the Word of God and the Holy Spirit working through the teaching, that's the normal means that God brings about people to the Christian faith. The abnormal means, that's totally under God's control. And like you said, we'd all love to see that happen, but we have to recognize that's a miracle. And we don't build strategies on miracles. If we build strategies on miracles, then we should be airlifting donkeys to these various locations because God can speak through donkeys sometimes and he can use incredible, extraordinary means, but we don't build philosophies off of them. And I think that's where sometimes the North American church goes awry and that we want things to happen. We have godly Mm. motivations, good hearted people, Uh but the price is usually longer than we're willing to sustain. And so we're not going to go through the normal process of teaching and allowing the Holy Spirit to work. That's normally how we see through scripture, God using his people. 
when we don't train our people to see that the gospel isn't just for unbelievers, but for all of life, including the life of the believer, we actually frustrate their ability to share the gospel with unbelievers. If we're not daily applying the gospel to our life, then we only think about the gospel in those moments where we think to evangelize. And it always has this sort of mechanical sales pitch feel to it because we don't think about it every day and we don't see how it applies to everyday life. That was the voice of Jared C. Wilson of For the Church and Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you're hungry for more, why not join us at the For the Church Conference September 23rd through 24th in Kansas City. We're giving away two free tickets to loyal listeners. Enter now at missionspodcast.com slash giveaway, and we'll see you there. Let me tell you a story about Abdul. As a teenager in a refugee camp, Abdul lived in a world of uncertainty. After a successful operation on his colon, he should have recovered, but he lost the will to live. And morning after morning, as he lay dying, he heard the voices of nurses beside his bed singing during their morning Bible study. Hospital workers serving with ABWE sat by Abdul's bedside, sharing stories of the Bible with him. One day, Abdul was talking with a member of the team, and suddenly God opened his eyes, and he asked excitedly, Tell me about Jesus. In the subsequent weeks, he began to smile. He started to eat, regaining his strength. He devoured every story everyone could tell him from the Bible. Abdul had been saved. Now Abdul is back in the refugee camps sharing the gospel with his family and friends. Well, you may have noticed that I didn't mention what country Abdul is living in. That's because we can't for security purposes. About 10% of ABWE's missionaries serve in parts of the world that we can't even mention by name. ABWE's Global Gospel Fund supports workers in limited access countries by providing security expertise, mobilizing those who seek to serve, and training new missionaries. Through the Global Gospel Fund, you can support a thousand missionaries with one gift. Please become a Global Gospel Fund partner. Go to abwe.org slash global gospel fund. That's abwe.org slash global gospel fund. Brooks, what counsel would you give to pastors who are looking to lead their churches and their missions teams in this direction, understanding that they're pushing up against uh, the this prevailing spirit of a short-term mindset? Uh, how would you encourage pastors as senders to distill this down to the lay people in their church and get them to view missions in this way? Because the type of missions that you're talking about isn't overly sexy for your annual missions push, right? Where you want to be able to celebrate, you know, we did this in this period of time, or we raised this much money, you want to be able to celebrate short term goals. So how should a pastor lead their church in understanding missions this way? Yeah, I'd say there's two things. Number one, that they have, they've taught, they've laid the foundation for a biblical missiology, which is basically code for a biblical theology. They've laid that foundation well. Where does the church intersect with the Great Commission? How, how does this impact us? What are our goals? Every church can't do everything. You can't be a great short-term missions church. You can't be a great long-term missions church. You can't drill wells. Um, do different things around with human trafficking. You just can't do everything. So you got to figure out what do we want to be as a church? What is the goal that we see from scripture and what kind of church do we want to be? And then I think, honestly, it's better education. Sometimes that means perspectives classes, though perspectives classes are starting to get, there's a, 
there's a little bit of wobble in there sometimes. It depends on what kind of yeah. teacher you get. But I would say there's a great book uh, by Kevin DeYoung called What is the Mission of the Church? I would mm-hmm. get that book. I would know that book well. There's a new one coming out. I'm just reading it right now. It's unbelievable. It's called No Shortcut to Success by Matt Redlings. That's going to be a really, really good resource for the church. And then I would expose the body to some of the saints from prior times. I would I would go through different and different biographies of Adniram Judson, Hudson Taylor, oh. Lottie Moon. I look at some of these ones and go, how do we raise up young people? How do we raise up church members like that? How do we get people that are willing to lay down their lives to say, man, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. If you can get that DNA into your church, and again, that comes back to building a biblical missiology. This is worth dying for. This is worth giving our members for. This is worth mourning the loss of some of our members to see a church planted that will outlive all of us. That That's worth doing. And I think if pastors take that seriously, they dive into some of those aspects, and they're not caught up necessarily in the how many people got saved, we just planted 15 churches in India over the past weekend. I was reading a book. Oh, sorry. I'm getting off track. No, I do it. I was reading a book yesterday about this one guy, a very noted name in missiology today and how an eight-year-old boy started a church by himself over the weekend. And a 14-year-old girl mm. who couldn't read and write has started two churches. And this was all in the past two weeks over in India. And you just, <laughs> you go, if it's too good to be true, you really should evaluate whether it's true or not. Yeah. This is some of this is getting so ludicrous. It's it's unbelievable. So that would be the the thing to watch out for. And and I've seen too. Um, you know, sometimes the practitioners of the you know of some of the some of the sensational stories that they end up hijacking actually good things that are happening too. That we would say, well, that that's actually using biblical methodology. I heard a story just recently that was tied into some of the you know some of these miraculous movements ideas. And when that when that was described to me, what was happening? It was you know a a missionary walking with a group of believers a new believers through through um the gospels and through acts and then through the old testament and um and and how then the the next group was taking the same approach and doing the same thing and as they were establishing churches i'm like i'm like and yet that was being ascribed to these spontaneous movements and i'm like that's not a spontaneous movement that's that's the discipleship we're talking about and yet some spontaneous movement people are grabbing onto some of those examples and saying, this is, this is our thing too. Well, you know, it's, it's not some, some of it is fabricated because these stories that you just described, other good things that are happening are actually using just the ordinary means that God gives us in his word. And yet giving it labels that, that make it seem like something else was happening. I don't know if that makes sense or if you've heard that kind of story as well. Yeah, it's really hard to pin down. And I'll just be honest, it's hard to pin down some of the practitioners, some of the bigger voices in this on specific details. One of the major things that we ask any agency or any team that's coming down to recruit at Radius, what is your definition of a church? How does someone Mm -hmm. get saved? Basically, if you can sort out their soteriology and their ecclesiology, if they'll give you clear answers on that, you'll have a really good idea what their methodology is. Because DMM and CPM, disciple-making movements and church planning movements are like a big burrito. They've got things inside of them that are good. And the emphasis on prayer, the emphasis Mm. on getting close to the people. Those are wonderful things. They've also got some very dangerous things. Obedience-based discipleship, person of peace, 
there are some dangerous aspects to that theology and even where it springs from, where are the biblical roots for this? And so you got to kind of unwrap the burrito and throw out the stuff that is really going to handicap, I believe, what God wants to do. And, you know, let me just throw this in, too, because you mentioned obedience-based discipleship. And I asked the question earlier, what's the harm in teaching people to go out and share right away what they're learning? And I mean, on one level, the answer to that is there's absolutely no harm in that, right? I mean, you know, to 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 own the gospel is to owe the gospel to everyone else, right? We, we should be um, not just receiving, but giving, right? Freely you've received, freely give. You know, we should be listening to the word of God as disciples with that posture and the disciples that we make, we should, we should train them in that, that attitude as early as possible. But when you mention obedience-based discipleship, this is, this is a methodology that's challenging people to obey Jesus as master. Um, but what happens there is that the, the gospel of grace gets, gets buried and, and maybe lost a little bit in there because when we think about the long work that it takes um, to communicate the gospel over time, Grace takes a long time to get. Uh, you, you have to lay the groundwork because it's so radically different from any other religion. So a friend of mine sent me this quote yesterday um, from J. Gresham Machen, who, if you're not familiar with uh, J. Gresham Machen, get familiar with him. But this is from uh, his noted work, Christianity and Liberalism, which you don't usually think of as a missiological text, but it has application there. He wrote this. According to modern liberalism, faith is essentially the same as, quote, making Christ master in one's life. At least it is by making Christ master in life that the welfare of men is sought. But that simply means, and here's where he gets into it. He says, that simply means that salvation is thought to be obtained by our own obedience to the commands of Christ. Such teaching is a sublimated form of legalism. Not the sacrifice of Christ on this view, but our own obedience to God's law is the ground of our hope. In this way, the whole achievement of the Reformation has been given up and there's, uh, there has been a return to the religion of the Middle Ages, he says. So, uh, you know, this is um, J. Gresham Machen writing, uh, you know, nearly 100 years ago. Uh, but this is the, in the height of the fundamentalist modernist controversies, um, at least what became that. Um, but, uh, it, you know, what, what you have is there's a lot of enthusiasm about getting people to apply the teachings of Jesus, yeah. but grace takes a lot longer than that to communicate. Yeah. Some people are probably listening in and hearing these terms. And I, and I, one thing I've, I've noticed in, in discussions with people involved in missiology and, and, and missions organizations, and I've had privileges to talk to a lot of different people, even just, even outside of my own personal perspective in that these terms are, are because there's not like one, you know, there's not like an Oxford dictionary for missiology terms. You know, like I think we need to be careful when we listen that we ask, what do you mean by that? Because mm. like terms like missions, movements, church planting movements, even terms mm. like unreached people groups or now frontier ventures is using the term uh, frontiers peoples. They need unpacking because you might have someone who's saying a church planting movement, meaning I'm starting a church that I hope is starting six or seven more churches. We're going to call it that. And then you read another uh, author or a missiologist who's using it in a totally nuanced, very different way. So it's really important one that you, as you're listening, you're not like, wow, I know this missionary, he used this term. This must be terrible. I'm going to X him out or, even that Scott and Alex and, and Brooks are crazy, you know, whatever the case may be, we need to unpack these terms because, you know, the, these are words that have layers of meaning and that aren't always used by the same people all the time in the same way. Oh, that's good, Scott. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I would agree with that, Scott. There's a lot of brothers, good brothers, who are doing some great things in missions that will call some of what they're doing something along the lines of movements, church planning movements. I just, the term at some point you go, this has got some baggage to it. You got to be really careful what you mean by it. And you've got to lay out clearly for the rest of us, how that ties in with what you believe missiologically. I, I think there is a growing, just like prior, some of your listeners may know this term, but it's called insider movements, where you would have people in the Muslim world that would get saved and they would be encouraged to stay in the mosque, stay in their family units, in their oikos, so that they could continue to reach other people. Insider movements has largely died out and there's uh, largely died out publicly. Privately, there's still some organizations that are practicing it, but that the backlash from the evangelical community was so strong when it came out what was happening. Some of that is starting to happen with CPM, DMM, just the terminology. If you look at Mark Dever's message at the T4G 2016 conference, endurance needed, strength for coming reformation, and the dangerous allure of speed, that message was specifically directed at some of these things. And I'm going to do an interview with him in another month, and we're going to talk about CPM, DMM very specifically on this. And there are a lot of other guys. The terminology has become loaded more so with the negative aspects of it. And so that that's where, man, when we're talking to agencies and they're trying to recruit our students, we caution them. If you're going to throw out CPM, DMM movement terminology, please define it. Because I think uh-huh. you're right, Scott. It uh-huh. can mean a variety of things. Yeah. Brooks, what would be your final encouragement to our listeners who are burdened for the unreached? Maybe they're already serving or maybe they're senders, um, but uh, some encouragement because there's need, but we also know God is sovereign. We don't want to wallow in our guilt, but we also want to make ourselves useful. So what would be your charge to them? Man, I, I think I think you said it well. God is sovereign over all these things, and that doesn't diminish our responsibility in either way. We can we can hold both of those truths at the same time. I, I think for us to be better educated, to continue to grow, to celebrate the victories that are happening, what's happening in China right now with the crackdown, and even to see the churches stepping up. It is not by accident that some of the locations around the world were persecuted is strongest, the church is growing and thriving and doing so very well. And so I think we we rejoice over those things. We pray for the next generation that's coming up. Uh, Radius is starting its next class in the next 48 hours. We're having the new students arriving right now as I speak. Hey. And just to see all of the different things that God's doing around the world, but to be faithful that, man, we are willing just because we're from the West doesn't mean our skin is thinner. That's the way the Yambis used to say it, just because our skin is in particular, is it thin enough? Is it thick enough to where we can stand some of these temptations mm. to go too fast, to be too pragmatic? Can we stay the distance to actually see churches, not disciples, disciples come and go in 20, 30 years, churches last for generations to plant churches? I think that's what we hope and we pray for and we celebrate the victories when we see them. Brooks, how can people hear more from you and from Radius? Uh, you want to get on the Radius report, go to radiusinternational.org. We produce a, uh, a article about current missiological issues. Just came out yesterday. I was on single men. Why are there so few single men in missions? And uh, come down to the Radius International, uh, we call it Radius Day. It's in November 22nd. And then next year, 
June 24th and 25th, we'll be having our missiology conference, David Platt, Ian Hamilton from Banner of Truth, David Jeremiah, and there's one other guest that I am just about to nail down. I don't want to say it on the air, but uh, those guys will all be sharing and you'll have a lot of the Radius staff that will be talking about the achievable Great Commission. This can be done. This is a task that is going to be completed by God's grace and how we're to be involved in that. So those would be the two. If you want the newsletter, that would be the the Radius Report, and then the two events that I would come to to get to know more about Radius. Thank you so much for your ministry. Thank you for the work that Radius is doing. And please take uh, Brooks up on his offer to learn more about them, follow the work that they're doing, pray for them, and uh, seek to partner with them in any way that you can. And we're grateful to be in the trenches together with you. Thank you for listening to the Missions Podcast today. If you want to get more great content on theology, missions, and practice, go to missionspodcast.com. And while you're there, subscribe in iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite listening platform. And please give us an honest review and a five-star rating. And don't forget to be sending your questions to alex at missionspodcast.com. Until next time, thank you for joining us.